Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I love this passage of Scripture because it links the Old Testament with the New Testament. And I love the Old Testament, and Paul actually gives an Old Testament example and says this is an example for us today, and he goes back to the Old Testament. The other reason I like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is because it has one of my favorite passages of Scripture in it. One of my life verses is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I think it would be a life verse for all of us. So those are some of the two issues that we're going to look at tonight. Um, what Paul is doing in this church in 1 Corinthians is he's addressing a lot of issues and one of the issues that the church is dealing with um, is pride, pride and arrogance. Um, they probably, remember a few weeks ago when we talked about, those of you that were here, we talked about meat sacrificed to idols. And that there was the weaker brother, the stronger brother, and there, was, there were gray matters, gray matters, gray areas. There were, there were gray matters. There was, there was areas in the Christian life that aren't explicitly um, prohibited in scripture so we, we made a list of all those things if you remember like what are some gray areas we talked about like do you wear do women wear dresses only at church or we talked about um, different things that aren't specifically prohibited in scripture that we can have freedom as christians and the bottom line that paul had was is we don't want to use our freedom as a stumbling block to mess up our witness with other with brothers that are and sisters that may not be as strong in the faith. And so probably what was happening in Corinth was there was this group of people that were saying, you know, we have freedom to pretty much do these things and we're going to kind of flaunt our freedom because we're free to do that. And there was a danger of them reverting back to idolatry. What do we know about the town of Corinth? I told you guys a few weeks ago, and I think when we first started, there were tons of idols all around Corinth. There were tons of idols, tons of temples. There was the Acro-Corinth, which was this thousand-foot-tall um, structure. Mountain on top of it was the temple to Aphrodite, and there were probably a thousand different male and female prostitutes that would go out into the town, and there was a lot of pagan idolatry there was pagan festivals in the temple. There, there was paganism all over the place. And so these Christians were always being tempted to revert back to idolatry. Okay? So let's just stop before we even start reading this. And let's talk a little bit about idolatry. Because when we think of idolatry, like David and I, when, when we've gone to India, idolatry is in your face. I mean, you see statues and you see temples and you see funky stuff all over the place. And it's easy to say, that's an idol. In America... When we talk about idolatry, I think a lot of Christians turn it off, turn you off, because they, when, they, when you guys think of idolatry, what do you immediately think of as Christians in America? Carved images. What would you say, Tina? Okay, yeah. So when we as Christians in America think of idolatry, we don't actually think about idolatry much. I think idolatry is one of the root sins and worst sins of all. And so we're going to talk about idolatry tonight because that's what 
Paul is driving us towards. So what he's going to do is, is he's going to use the example of that first generation in Exodus. If you guys remember back from your Old Testament, there was the first generation of Israelites in Exodus in Egypt. They had escaped the Red Sea. They had gotten manna and quail in the wilderness. They had been led by a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke. They had seen water come from the rock. But what happened in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 when they sent the 12 spies in to spy out the land? Ten of them came back and said, they're way too big. We can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. What happened? The people said, we're not going to obey God. And so God says, okay, this generation is going to die in the wilderness. And that generation died in the wilderness. The new generation was raised, and that next generation was the ones that actually got to go into the promised land. So there were two generations in Exodus in the wilderness, and Paul is pointing us towards that first generation, the example of that first generation that experienced all the blessings of God, but yet succumbed to idolatry and to arrogance and to rebellion. So um, the first generation of Exodus. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 in in, in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 1 where Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, he calls them our fathers. Now, the Corinthians were primarily a Gentile church. They were non-Jewish. How could their forefathers be Israelites when they were Gentiles? That's a question. Why does Paul say our fathers? How could Gentile Christians be connected to the Israelites? How could the people in the Old Testament actually be our ancestors and our fathers? Hopefully on Sunday mornings, we've been reading enough about Abraham to find out that the promise made to Abraham was that all the nations in the earth would be blessed and that through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on down to the 12 tribes and eventually through Moses and then eventually through David, Christ has come. And so Galatians 3.29 tells us that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So when we think about the Israelites, they are our ancestors by faith. Now, not ethnically, but spiritually, they're our ancestors. And so Paul is writing here saying, I want you to learn from that generation in the first, you know, the first generation in Exodus time, what they did wrong. So here's the issue. All these Old Testament Israelites in the first generation of Exodus were recipients of divine blessings, but because of their arrogant and stubborn disobedience were barred entrance into the promised land. Now, listen to what Paul lists off here. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, you don't have to go back and, and, and look at the specific scriptures, but we will. But what was the cloud? You guys remember the cloud? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. What was the sea? 
the Red Sea. Okay, so Exodus 13.21 tells us, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Now let's just stop for a minute. If you were an Israelite in that first generation, what have you seen so far? You've seen the... Well, hello, Kramer. Come on. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I can pick on her. No, I can pick on No, I just, I don't know why. That's kind of a joke in our family when somebody enters the room kind of crazy. It wasn't crazy. I'm giving you a hard time. Um, so if you were part of that first generation of, of Israelites, you'd slaughtered the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house and seen the angel of death pass over and not kill your firstborn. You'd seen the plunder of the Egyptians. You went through the Red Sea. You got manna and quail. You got a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Now, aren't those amazing things that probably nobody else, even in Corinth, is anybody else going to have that experience today, probably? There might be some amazing things that happen in the world that God is doing, but we can't really say, nobody here can say we went through the Red Sea and we were led directly by God by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and we didn't have food today, but we went outside and this manna came down. Think of all the blessings they got to experience that were amazing things. Okay, they ate manna in the wilderness. They drank water from the rock. Exodus thirteen twenty one, And I think I already put that in there. Is that in there twice? I think I put the wrong scripture in there. Exodus 17.6. Well, I guess you needed to hear that twice. Exodus 17.6. Behold, I think I forgot to put the manna. There's a scripture from the Old Testament that talks about God providing the manna. Do you remember what manna was called? What is it? It came down from heaven and they went out and they're like, what is it? Well, it was manna translated in Hebrew as what is it? And so God provided them manna. Exodus 17.6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And so Moses did so in sight of all the elders of Israel. So Moses struck the rock, and water came out. Now, Paul here does something very interesting. He does what is called a typology. Look at verse 4. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Now, this is a typology because was when Moses was in the when was Moses was in the wilderness and he struck the rock, was the rock literally Christ? No, it was a rock. But Paul calls the rock Christ. But what's he doing there? He's basically saying that rock that Moses struck and water came out is a picture of Jesus. Now, what happened to Jesus? He's the rock. On the cross, he got struck, and water came out of his side. But also, Jesus said, if you believe in me, streams of living water will come out of you. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. And so Paul is taking an Old Testament image here of of a rock being struck and saying that ultimately, this is a picture of what Christ has done on the cross. And so they had all these spiritual blessings, wonderful spiritual blessings. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, 
With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Some translations say they were, their bodies were strewn in the wilderness. So here's the question, and I think we talked about this just a minute ago. How many from that original generation actually got to experience the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. So do you find this very interesting that, listen to what, do you see the contrast Paul's doing here? Look at how many words all. All under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, but God was pleased with, or God was displeased with most of them. So they had experienced these great blessings, but only two got to go into the promised land. And if you go back to the book of Hebrews, the whole issue was unbelief. And so what I want us to do is I want us to go back to Numbers chapter 14, because that's the turning point. So we're going to go back. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to go back to Numbers 14, because Numbers 14 is the turning point in the whole Exodus promised land um, story. Really, Numbers 13 and 14 should be read together. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at numbers, part of Numbers 14 because Numbers 13 is when God tells Moses to send them on a reconnaissance mission and they go in and they spy out the land of Canaan and they see the big grapes and they look like giants and they come back and they're fearful. And um, basically, Caleb quiets the people and say, let's go, let's go occupy it. We can do it. And everybody says, no, we're not able to do this. And, we're, you know, they're huge. Let's pick up in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And that's pretty serious words. What are they saying? Yeah. We don't want the promised land, number one, and we don't want the leader God's given us. So we're not, we're, we'd rather go back to Egypt, and we'd rather pick another leader. So they rebel against God's spiritual leader, Moses, and they rebel against the promise of going to the promised land. And basically, the whole congregation complains, and they rise up. Look at verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only, this is key, do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. Now, verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I mean, what are they saying? Joshua has just stood up and said, Don't 
rebel against the Lord, trust in the Lord, the Lord's on our side, the Lord's going to give it to us, there's nothing to us. You know, Joshua gives this rousing speech about how glorious it is to go into the promised land because God's on our side, and how do they respond? They want to stone them. That's the height of rebellion. And then God comes and intervenes with the, the, the cloud, and then he speaks to Moses. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then if you go on to read, Moses is like, No, Lord, you can't do this because you promised to Abraham that you would give him the land and you, you, you have steadfast love and please forgive them. And so Moses intercedes and then God says, Well, I'll forgive you and Caleb and Joshua will be able to go in, but the rest of that rest of that generation, they're going to die in the wilderness. Their bodies are going to die in the wilderness. So God pronounces judgment on their rebellion. And what you find out through the rest of, of, of Numbers is that they people begin to die off. So turn to Numbers 1640. Um, that may not be the right verse I want. Let me see. Okay, yeah. This is just a reference to Korah. We'll talk about it a little bit. In chapter 16, Korah, yeah, the whole chapter 16, Korah and his band of followers basically rise up against Moses and try to rebel against Moses. And the Lord opens up the earth and swallows them up. Then they die. That's, they die. And then Numbers 25, 9. Let me see here. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So all throughout Numbers, after they rebel, people keep dying off. They keep getting more rebellious. They keep getting more stubborn. And God is not pleased. As Paul says... With most of them, God was not pleased, except for two, Joshua and Caleb and Moses. But even Moses himself was not allowed to enter the promised land. Um, so they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why in the world does Paul bring this up? Why does he bring up the Old Testament story? Well, here's the, war- here, here's, here's the warning. In verses 6 through 14, or 6 through 13, he gives what happened to them was because of their idolatry. So let's, let's read 6 through 13. Now, we're back in 1 Corinthians now. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And Paul flat out says, I'm, I'm giving you this Old Testament story as an example. Don't be like that generation. They desired evil. And then he says, very specifically in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Their biggest sin was idolatry. It was the root sin of all their other sins. And I would, I would say to you guys, and I, I think I've drawn this before. It bears repeating again. If you think about a tree, okay, so here's a tree, and here's fruit on the tree, and here's the ground, and this is the root system, right? I, I think the Bible talks about root sins, I think the Bible talks about fruit sin, fruit sins. Oftentimes, the fruit sins are easier to see because they're outward actions. The fruit sins would be like the Ten Commandments, adultery, stealing, lying, murder, maybe cussing, you know, anything... Uh, um, what else would we want to put out here? Um, disobedience to parents. The, the sins that you can see, they're easy to see because they're manifested normally in behavior. But why do, the, why do people commit those sins? It's because underneath the surface, there's a root sin that is really pushing those fruit sins. And the root sins are often things like pride, selfishness, lust, but at the root of all of those, I think, is idolatry. Idolatry is like the root of the root that pushes everything, because basically what idolatry says is that I'm going to do whatever I want, regardless of who God is, and so I'm going to have pride, selfishness, lust, and it's going to manifest itself in different, in different things, and so what Paul does is he goes straight to the root here which is idolatry among that old generation in Exodus. And he's talking about the Corinthians here, how they need to not succumb to the idolatry. So their biggest sin was idolatry. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14.3. He's talking to the elders of Israel. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? This is the, one of the few times in the Old Testament where idolatry is linked to the heart. All throughout the Old Testament, God says, that, you know, you shall worship me alone, have no other gods before me, don't carve graven images. But here it says they've taken the idols into their hearts. What does that mean? They've taken the idols into their hearts. That's who they are. It's, they've internalized it. They, it. It's become part and parcel of who they are. So let's just talk about that Old Testament generation. What was the most graphic display of idolatry of the Israelites in the wilderness? It has to be the golden calf. Exodus 32, 6-9. And Paul mentions this. What does Paul say? He says there in verse... Um, Seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. As it is written. So he's quoting an Old Testament passage. They sat down to eat, 
they drank, and they rose up to play. Where does he find that? Exodus 32, 69. It says this, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the commandment, or out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. So what happened with the golden calf episode? You know what always amazes me about the golden calf episode? Is that Aaron let it happen. What did they do? They brought all their gold together. They burned it down. They fashioned a calf. They had an orgy around it, so much so that it sounded like a war. Because Abraham's like, what's going on down there? Are we at war? No, they were partying so hard around a statue it was the ultimate in corruption, in immorality, in degradation. And basically they were saying, this, is the, this, is, this calf is the one that brought us out of Egypt. I mean, what a slap in the face to God. I mean, that's, what God that's what it said. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, that's the epitome of idolatry. And that's when Moses comes down and what does he do? He throws down the Ten Commandments and then... I mean, so this is the height of idolatry. And this is after what? After they've been through the Red Sea, after they've had man and quail, after they have water from the rock, they've seen all these things. How easy is it? Let me just ask a question. How easy is it to succumb to idolatry as a believer? Let's not talk about non-Christians out there because, I mean, let's not pick on them. Let's pick on us. How easy is it for us to succumb to idolatry? Pretty, pretty easy, especially if you take it into your heart. And so he's going to give, Paul's going to give three ways that they, they engaged in idolatry in that generation. The first one is, oh, go ahead, Larry, sorry. Yeah. You know, it started, and it's just like so much other things. Everybody else just jumps on the bandwagon and goes, this sounds like a good deal. That's a great point, Larry, because notice how many of these scriptures, even from the New Testament, Old Testament, the entire congregation, all the people, the whole congregation, it's amazing that, it wasn't just a few people over here. Now, Korah's rebellion, it was a few people over here, but somehow they had the mob mentality that they all fell for it and how easy it is to give in to that peer pressure. When you go through this, it almost makes you wonder, did the majority of the Israelites really accept God? That first generation. First generation, yes. Did they really accept him after all that they've seen and all that he did? Did they really accept him or was it just... Well, I would probably, let's go to Hebrews. I wasn't planning on doing that, but let's just do it. No, but I want to just read one verse. No, that's a good question, Larry, because that's always plagued me. That first generation, were they truly, in the Old Testament sense of the word, were they truly saved? Because God says in Hebrews chapter... Yeah, Hebrews chapter 3, verse um, 16. The writer of Hebrews gives the, same, gives the same story, really. He talks about that same generation, and he uses it to warn the, the, the audience in Hebrews about unbelief, about hardening their hearts. 
Um, Hebrews 3.16, let's just read this real quick. For, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? They heard and they rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So to me, it sounds like their major sin was unbelief. Idolatry and unbelief, and that ultimately prevented them from getting into the promised land. So, I mean, it's a good question. That's a great point. They were out of Egypt, but was Egypt out of them? Um, that's... Well, they wanted Egypt to be out. Of, I mean, they wanted out of Egypt all that time. You know, that's the thing that always, don't they remember? <laughs> yeah, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They get out of Egypt, and they're always wanting to go back to Egypt. Why would you want to go back to slavery? Why did you want to go back under a yoke of affliction? And so they didn't understand the freedom they had in a provider. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't you love to walk out every day and have, you know, you wouldn't have to go to Walmart ever again. Your food's provided for you. It was comfortable. It was comfortable. Yeah. It was a safe zone. Yeah, it was a safe zone. Yeah. That's a good point. We, we tend to get very comfortable and, and complacent. And when God calls us to obedience or God calls us to take risks or God calls us to follow him in faith, to go out, launch out into the promised land where you, you know, they had been told to do from the time they were born in Egypt to the time they died. They had no idea what freedom was. Yeah. Yeah. And they couldn't handle it. Yeah, they couldn't handle the freedom. You can't handle the truth. All right, so they can't handle the freedom. All right, so Paul gives three ways here. Three examples of how they engage in idolatry. So Paul, Paul just kind of gives th- a list of three here. The first thing he says there in verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Okay, let's, so, so sexual immorality is the first thing. He says we must not engage in sexual immorality. He's dealt with this almost in every chapter in 1 Corinthians because they were coming out of a pagan culture of sexual promiscuity, and that was a temptation for them to always go back into. But there was the, the, the nation of Moab, as I'm preparing you know, the Genesis sermons. Um, I don't know if you guys know where Moab comes from. Um, do you remember Lot, passive Lot? Lot ends up camping out in Sodom, and the two angels come to Sodom and say, you need to get your family out of here. And he's like, I don't really want to go. And he's like, you better get out of here. And so... Lot leaves, but his wife turns around and she becomes a pillar of salt. And then his two daughters, who haven't been married yet because their sons-in-law die, get this great idea. Let's get our dad drunk and have sex with him so that we can have offspring. So they get Lot drunk, and the first daughter goes in, has sex with him the first night. And then another daughter goes, let's get him drunk another night. And I'm thinking to Lot, hadn't you learned your lesson the first night? The second night... So both his daughters, have he has incest with both of his daughters, and the two children that are born from Lot are Moab and Ammon, Amor- and the Amorites, the Amorites and the Moabites. So the Moabites started from an incestuous relationship, and they've always been a sexual temptation for the Israelites. The Moabites are, the Moabites are a euphemism in the Old Testament of leading Israel into sexual immorality. And we find that in Numbers. Numbers 25, 1 through 3 
Listen to the Moabites. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Pretty self-explanatory. The daughters of Moab come in. They look hot. The sons of Israel go out. They whore among them, and these women drive them to worship false gods, and that's where Baal worship starts. The Moabites start Baal worship. The Israelites starting to worship Baal, which causes problems all throughout the rest of their history. And so Paul says, okay, don't, don't give in to sexual immorality. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He'd already addressed it back in chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, just a few, ver- few chapters back. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then the next whole passage in chapter 6 is flee sexual immorality. He's always having to deal with this issue in Corinth because it was such a huge issue that many of them had come out of that lifestyle. So the first thing he says, one of the key ways you commit idolatry is sexual immorality. Now let me ask you a question. Why is sexual immorality linked to idolatry? Why is sexual immorality idolatrous? I mean, we know it's sinful, we know it's against God's law, but why is it idolatry? Okay, your body's a temple and you're sinning against your body. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a great reason. Well, Aphrodite, yeah, in that culture, Aphrodite, but I'm just saying in today, not Corinth, why is, why is sexual immorality idolatry? Mm-hmm. That's probably the, be- the, the most important reason is the marriage is a picture of the gospel. Yeah, that, I mean, that's probably the most important. When I think of sexual immorality and idolatry linked together, what, when you commit sexual immorality, whether it's sleeping together before marriage, whether it's sleeping together outside of marriage, or whether it's sleeping with somebody of the same sex, or however, you define, you know, however the Bible defines, not however the Bible, the Bible does define sexual immorality, why, what you're basically saying is, my feelings and what I want to do trump God's standards. And so basically you're saying, I know more how to control my body and what I want to do than to submit to God's law and God's standards. And so therefore, I'm going to disregard what God says about human sexuality and I'm going to do my own thing because after all, this is how I feel, makes me feel good and I'm doing this because I want to. And basically what you've told God is that I'm God. Is that idolatry? And so Paul links sexual immorality to idolatry. Now, the second one's a little interesting. What does he say secondly here? Putting Christ to the test. 
We must not put Christ, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Put Christ to the test. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't Christ per se. It was God the Father. But because of the Trinitarian nature of Jesus and the Father, Paul makes it, you know, don't put Christ to the test. Numbers 21, 5 through 6. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, this manna that's provided every day that may not have had taste, but at least it fed us and our family. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. God says, you want to complain about being out of Egypt? You want to complain about your food? Let me give you something else to complain about. Here's some fiery serpents. And so God, God sent serpents because they put God to the test. They complained. They put God, what were, how are they putting God to the test in this? What were they basically saying? We don't trust you, God, to, do, to provide for us. I know you brought us out of Egypt. And I know you provided our food, but that's not good enough, God. We really don't trust that you're providing for us. It's better that we go back and be under slavery. Now, what happened to Jesus when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Matthew chapter 4, 5 through 7. This is the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And we could spend a whole long time talking about the, the temptations of Jesus, but what do you think it's interesting? What, what, first of all, what, is, what does Satan say? If you are the Son of God, not I know you are the Son of God, but if you are the Son of God, and what does Satan do in all the temptations? He quotes Scripture. Satan knows Scripture better than most Christians. It doesn't mean he believes it. It doesn't mean he submits to it. But what does he do to the Scripture here? He twists it just enough to basically put Jesus in a position where he's just going to jump off the temple and presume upon God and have God bail him out and put God to the test. So let me ask you a question. What, do you, what does it mean to put God to the test? I've had to think about this one. We understand sexual immorality. That's pretty easy. But don't put God to the test. How can we today put God to the test? Or do you need to think about it like I do? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe put God in your debt. If God, if you do these things for me, I will do these things for you. I promise God I'll stop doing this if you bail me out. And I won't ever do that again. But you know, or God, I'll really worship you if you bless me the way I want you to bless me. Or something bad happens in your life and you get mad at God like why would you allow this to happen to me? So I think I think those are good examples of putting God to the test. We're basically saying we don't trust God to be God, and we, He has to perform on command for us in the way we want Him to in order for us to trust Him. Okay. Number three, none of us do this, do we? Grumbling. <laughs> Not just your stomachs when you're hungry. Oh, that's rumbling, grumbling. Um, grumbling, what does he say? Back in verse 10, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Um, grumbling. Numbers 16, 32 through 35. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. 
with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. What started all that? Grumbling. They grumbled so much that this guy Korah said, okay, you want another leader? Let's take care of this. We'll oppose Moses, we'll get a coalition together, and let's go back to Egypt. And they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled, and God says, okay, you want to grumble? The earth opened up and swallowed them up and fire consumed them. Now, thankfully, you know, God hopefully doesn't do that today when we grumble because Christ took our sin on the cross. But um, Philippians 2.14 Oh, it's asking for an update. Nah. Um, Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Easier said than done, right? So idolatry... So how is grumbling idolatry? What are you basically saying when you're grumbling? Yeah, whatever God gives me is not good enough. I'm not content. Or God, you don't, you don't get it. You don't this get is, it. This yeah. This is how I have it figured out, so you've got it wrong. Yeah, God, you've got it wrong. <laughs> I've got it figured out better. Um, I'm impatient. And so, yeah, it's idolatry. Because basically you're questioning the very character of God. That he's not loving. He's not good. He's not kind. He's not blessing you. And so you begin to grumble. Um, let me just ask you a question. Do we in America have any right to grumble? Really? Maybe some people. I mean, not really, because we're not supposed to grumble. Right. But, I mean, there are definitely people who are suffering. Yes. But most of us really aren't. And I'm not, yeah, and I'm not saying we should, I'm not saying we take a stiff upper lip like the British and not deal with suffering. I'm saying that when we suffer, are we experiencing the joy of the Lord in suffering by trusting in God's sovereignty, or do do we grumble? I think most of us grumble. Yeah, how does grumbling start? And I think this is what Larry was alluding to. It's probably one or two that start it. Then, hey, Don, do you know what happened the other day? And I can't believe it. The blah, blah, blah. We start grumbling. And then, oh, yeah. And the next thing you know, Doug and, you know, you know we're, we're all kind of just bl- blows up all over the place because the grumbling just keeps going and growing and nobody puts a stop to it. So how do you stop grumbling? Somebody comes to you and grumbles. What do you say? Stop it. How easy is it to give in to gossip? I think gossip's hard to stop. Because what do we want to know? We want to know the juicy details. And if somebody comes to us with a prayer request, I'm concerned about so-and-so. Let's pray for them. Really, it's more let's gossip about them and veil it in some spiritual terminology that we're going to pray for them. It's really easy to gossip because it's human nature, and then gossip can turn to grumbling and then taking up a defense of another person, and then next thing you know, you have Korah's rebellion, and if you're not careful, all of you can get swallowed up in a big coal. And, no, just no, that's not, that's not going to, no. But, it, but, but these are things that, that Paul says, sexual morality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling are all acts of idolatry. But notice what he says in verse 11. These things happen to them as an example. 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, so Paul gets to his main point. When he says, therefore, here's my point. I've given you the history. I've told you what the sins were. I've told you that it was written for our instruction. Therefore, here's my main point. Verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's the sin of arrogance and overconfidence. These things couldn't happen to me. What does Proverbs 16, 18 say? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Take, lest, and therefore, lest anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Take heed. I think Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 addresses this pretty well too. Take care, it's the same word there. Take care. Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, let's just stop and let's talk about that passage of Scripture, because there's a lot there. What does the writer of Hebrews first tell us to do? Take care. What does Paul tell us to do? What does it mean to take care? Watch out. Be vigilant. Be on guard. This is something that's easily going to happen to you, so you've got to be vigilant. Take care, brothers, so he's talking to Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, could there be an evil, unbelieving heart in a believer? Yes. And what does that lead to? If you stay in that condition, I don't necessarily believe it means you lose your salvation. It means that probably you weren't saved in the first place, but eventually you could fall away. If you stay in an unrepentant, hardened state of unbelief. But what does he say in verse 13? Exhort one another. What does it mean to exhort? Encourage, lift up. The word exhort really means to come alongside a person in the trenches. It doesn't mean to stand at a distance and kind of clap somebody on like a cheerleader. You know, go, yay. It means more get down in their life next to them, walk through the situation with them. And how long are we to do it? Once in a while when we feel like it? Every day, as long as it's called today. So when is it going to stop being called today? Tomorrow, and then it's going to be today. And then when is it going to be stopped calling today? Never. That none of you may be hardened. That word in the Greek means the hardening of the arteries. We get our word sclerosis from it. What is sclerosis? It's the hardening of the arteries. If you get too much calcium and too much cholesterol, what happens? Your arteries get clogged and you end up having a heart attack or stroke so it's deadly to have hardening of the arteries he's saying it's deadly to have a hardening of your life because the deceitfulness of sin does sin deceive us what does sin deceive us into thinking it's fun it's not sin it's fun i'm not going to get caught there's no repercussions there's no consequences i can do whatever i want to do and and when you get deceived into sin and you commit sin it just catapults itself into this hardening. The more you sin, the more you get hardened. The more you harden, the more you get sin. And that's why we need each other as Christians to exhort and encourage one another every day so that we don't fall, as Paul says. Don't be prideful. So I don't know the answer to this, but what do you think? What were they putting their trust in? Or, may, or let me just ask it another way. What are some things that we can put our trust in that aren't in Christ that we think are going to help us stand? What does he say there? 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What do you think they were trusting in to help them stand that wasn't Christ or things you can trust in? Yeah, your position in life, which would be like your, your job, your career, your, your money. What are some other things you can... Okay. I can do this. How many Christians have fallen because they thought to themselves, I can handle this on my own, or I'm untouchable? I think a lot of leaders, if you read stories of, if you read stories of politicians who've fallen, or megachurch pastors, not just megachurch pastors, but pastors who've fallen, it all comes back to the point that they get so big, and they, they get so separated from the normal person that they have, they almost get in this bubble of leadership to where they feel like they're untouchable and they can pretty much do whatever they want and it's never going to catch up with them. And you go back and read all these stories about these pastors and these politicians and that's the same thing they'll say over and over again. I was fooled in thinking I was never going to get caught. I was above the law. I could do what I wanted to because they didn't have, they didn't surround themselves with people that could speak truth into their lives, um, which is kind of scary. Now, verse 13, I think, is a great encouragement. A lot of you may have memorized this verse early in your Christian walk. No temptation is overtaking this common to man. Not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God puts limits on our temptations. Now, God doesn't tempt us because James tells us that. But... Everybody faces the same types of temptations. And if you are a Christian, God will provide a way out for you. What's often the problem, though? We don't take advantage of those, those escape routes. And so God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. I think the main thing is just to have our eyes open to not get into that temptation in the first place. If you avoid the temptation in the first place, you don't have to be in a position where you have to flee it. Now, there's sometimes where temptation comes and you can't avoid it. But let me give you a perfect example, the difference between the two. One is you're on a business trip by yourself. You're staying in a hotel. You get in the elevator. You're the only one there. And a lady walks on to you, and she's scantily dressed, and she's beautiful, and she's eyeing you the whole way up to the ninth floor. That's temptation, right? What can you do at that point? If you get off on the third floor or, 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 or do something or, or like start burping or doing something to get her, you know, to make her turned off or, or something or start acting like a monkey. I don't know what you do. You just whatever you need to do to get. Okay, so that's temptation hitting you right in the face where it's like, okay, I need to, God, give me a way out of this. That, that's, that's something that you didn't. All right, the other scenario is I'm on a business trip. I'm by myself and I purposely make an attempt to go to a strip club so that I can see something that I'm not supposed to see, and I'm making a premeditated decision to put myself in a position of temptation. There's a difference right there, isn't it? Don't put yourself in the position versus sometimes temptations come. Now, is God going to provide a way of escape for you if you decide to go to the strip club? You might be hanging out. You can, you can still get up and walk out, but you pretty much made a premeditated decision. What? You still have legs, and you can start burping in there, I guess. I don't know. Or I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But um, anyway, that's just an encouraging verse, okay? All right, so he's going to give more warnings against 
How are we doing on time? More warnings against um, idolatry. Verses 14 through 22. So let's read this. This is where it gets a little confusing. We haven't been confused yet, have we, in 1 Corinthians? Especially in chapter 7. We were very confused, but I think we worked through it. Let's, more warnings against idolatry. So let's read verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I mean, he says it again in no uncertain terms. Flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, cultural, historical issues we've got to understand here. This whole issue of table of demons. In that culture, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about meat sacrificed to idols. There were the temples, and the temples were kind of like, what do we say? It was like the Masonic Lodge of the day. You could go there for weddings, events. You could go there for, for like um, actual, like if somebody had a wedding or somebody had a birthday, they may have it hosted at the temple. And they may serve meat sacrifice to idols. And sometimes a Christian, because of family obligations, would have to go there. Okay? But there were also temple feasts where you would go purposely to worship the deity at that temple. So like you'd go to the temple of Bacchus or the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Zeus. And you'd partake in the temple festivals and eat the meat sacrifice to idols knowing exactly what you were doing, participating in that pagan idolatry. And so people in Corinth had come out of that. And they were still susceptible to... They may have had friends that still went to the temple. That, that was a temptation for them. And Paul's saying that type of worship is demonic because it's pagan idol temple worship. And so what's he saying here? He says, flee idolatry. Second time. In 1 John 5.21, John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us what idolatry ultimately is. This is the definition of idolatry. Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and and animals and reptiles. What is idolatry? You don't have your Bible, but if you have your Bible open to Romans 1, Look at verse 23. The key word there is exchange the glory. Idolatry is an exchanging of something. You're exchanging the glory of God for worshiping something that's not God, whether it's a reptile, a bird, or another person, or a statue. Now, let me ask you a question. What's an exchange? What does it mean to exchange something? You're taking one or the other. You're giving up something for the other. So basically what you're saying is, I am in that moment preferring, choosing to prefer, honor, cherish, deeply hold on to something other than the glory of God. And that's idolatry. 
when the ultimate reason why we exist is for the glory of God and to worship God and to give praise to God. So idolatry at its core is saying, I'm exchanging, I'm trading out the glory of God for something created by God. So in and of itself, idols can be good things, can they not? They don't necessarily have to be bad things. Is your family a bad thing? Can it become an idol? Is your job a bad thing? No. Can it become an idol? Is money in and of itself a bad thing? No, but it can become an idol. Anything that exchanges the glory of God for something he created, and you preference and value that over the glory of God, that becomes an idol. Anything that you put in its highest place, it's an idol. And here's another definition of idolatry. You know it's an idol if that thing were taken away from you you would utterly be devastated and crushed and feel like not living. If that was taken away from you and you have those feelings, that's an idol. In the end, if Christ is not the center of your life, everything else is a vain idol. Listen to what Tim Keller, he has a good definition of idolatry. Um, He writes, It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. His book, Counterfeit Gods, is an excellent book. He traces the the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah in the Old Testament, talks about how they experienced idolatry, and it's a really good book called Counterfeit Gods, uh, Idolatry. So Paul here is warning against idolatry. And remember, they were saved out of idolatry. In Thessalonica, a sister area, you know, you had Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, all those churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So in a lot of these pagan Gentile cities that Paul went to, they had come out of idolatry to embrace Christ and the gospel. And there was always that temptation to fall back into it. And then, strangely enough, Paul starts to address the Lord's Supper here. He kind of brings it in there. Verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I mean, he's talking about the Lord's Supper right, right there, isn't he? The body and blood of Christ, the participation in Christ. Now, he talks about the cup of blessing. Now, why he calls it the cup of blessing is very important. We've done a Passover Seder here at Emmanuel for a few years. We, we don't do it every year, about every three years. But when you do the Passover, and when Jesus did the Passover in the Last Supper, there in the upper room, there's four cups. There's four cups that you drink of wine during the Passover. The third cup is the cup of blessing. And this is the one that most scholars believe Jesus used at the Last Supper when he blessed it and he took it and drank it. And so Paul calls it the cup of blessing, relating it back to the Passover. But we find out in Matthew 26, 28, Matthew 26, 26 to 28, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink. It, it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul is saying here is something very special about the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have a spiritual participation. And that word participation, yours were, may, does yours have fellowship? Could it could be, the word's koinonia. 
Um, your translation may have fellowship or participation or joint participation or something. What do your translations say? Do they say fellowship, participation? It's, if you have the Greek New Testament, it would say koinonia. It's, um, basically, here's the issue. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have a spiritual participation with Christ and we have a spiritual communication together as the body of Christ. Now, I love this because notice what he says. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is not that a participation in the blood of Christ. Now, we're not Roman Catholics where we believe that when we take the, what they call the Eucharist, that the body and blood actually become, or the, you know, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. That, we don't believe that. The Lutheran view is a little bit sort of like that. We believe it's symbolic, right? There's nothing magical about a grape juice and a wafer. But I think sometimes as Baptists, we go so symbolic that we don't stop and think about the spiritual connotation of what it means when we take the Lord's Supper. You understand what I'm saying? What Paul's saying here is there's something spiritual that happens. There's a participation in Christ when we take of those elements. Now, they don't save us. They don't bring salvation to us. But there is something deeply spiritual, number one, about taking the Lord's Supper because it means we commune vertically with Jesus but he also says we commune horizontally with each other. What does he say there? In verse 17, Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's saying when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, we call it communion because we commune with Christ and we commune with one another. There's something very special, something very intimate, something very spiritual that happens when you take the Lord's Supper in that we as a body, we're all coming together as different people, but we're in that one room together and we're taking the Lord's Supper. It's not a private affair. Could you take the Lord's Supper alone in your home by yourself? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something special about coming together as many into one and taking it together as a family in community because we know each other, we love each other, we encourage one another so we can commune together and we can commune vertically. Does that, does that make sense? I think sometimes the Lord's Supper needs to be a little bit more, I think we just need to think more deeply about it at times. Um, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's what the early church did. They, they got together, they prayed, they taught, they fellowshiped, and then they broke the bread the Lord's Supper. And then Paul here <laughs> contrasts the Lord's Supper with pagan sacrifice to demons. And there's pretty big contrast, right? None of you today are going to go celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday and then go to a pagan temple and do a demon sacrifice, are you? But in Corinth, they may have. Or they may have friends and family members that were doing that. And Paul's saying, you can't come into church and celebrate the Lord's Supper and have the spiritual communion with Christ and the spiritual communion with the church and then leave and go out and go to a temple and sit down and eat meat sacrificed to idols fully knowing that you're participating in pagan worship. But there were some in Corinth that could have done that. And what were they probably thinking in context of these past three chapters? I've got freedom to do that. I know, these, I know that those gods aren't really gods. And I know Zeus is just a fake god. And I'm just kind of going there to hang out with my friends because, after all, I don't want to look weird. So I can come to church and do one thing and the Lord's Supper, and I can go out there and do another thing because, after all, God knows my heart, and he knows that I'm not really worshiping those gods. Well, God may know your heart, but what about the weaker brother that's watching you do that? You're being a stumbling block to him or to her. 
And so this is what was happening. Um, back in Deuteronomy 32, there's an interesting statement. Um, Israel is called Jeshurun. It's kind of a metaphor for Israel. It means it was kind of a, a, um, a metaphor. But God's talking about Israel. But Yeshurun, or Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So it goes back to that Old Testament generation said, even the Old Testament generation sacrificed to demons, and it was an act of idolatry. And so here's the, here's the issue Paul's saying. It's very clear. For the Corinthians, the issue was clear. Should a believer celebrate the Lord's Supper in church and then go out to a pagan temple and eat with idolaters meat that was sacrificed to a demon? And I think Jesus' statement is probably pretty clear in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. He's specifically talking about money there, but I think the principle is true. Can you have two masters? You're going to have divided affections. It's either one or the other. And so that's kind of what he's, what he's warning against. And so the bottom line is this. True Christians should not flirt with the demonic. How do we do this? When we engage in idolatry. I don't know if you've ever thought much about demonic issues. Um, demon, possessed, demon possession or um, things like that. But... I don't know if there's a I don't know if there's a temptation per se for like us and Sterling to go out and do demon worship. But what are ways that we can <clears throat> open ourselves up to 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 demons? What are ways we can do that and maybe not even know we're doing that? Yeah. Okay. Horoscopes, tarot cards, tea leaves, and palm reading, and Psychic Friends Network, and little things like that, that most, or Ouija boards, or things that maybe Christians, I mean, I hope Christians don't do that, but maybe some feel like that's what they need to do, and I think you're, yeah, and even just what we, I mean, I think that for that culture, like in India, it's easy to see demonic I mean, we didn't see anything demonic, but we almost thought we were going to see something demonic when that lady came out and Wayne's like, you need to cast a demon out of her, and we were all prepared to do that. Um, but, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't happen. But when you're, when you're surrounded by pagan idolatry pronounced, you're, you probably see more demonic manifestations. In America, I think the devil's a little bit more subtle because what, what we get seduced into is not so much the idol, like the... The demonic idols, what we get seduced into is like materialism and sexual immorality and um, complacency and things like that. And I think the devil is alive and well in those things. It may just not be manifested the way we think about like in foreign countries with witch doctors and shrieking and foaming at the mouth and things. I'm not saying that th- stuff doesn't happen. Um, you know, I, I had a, my professor when I went out to seminary a few weeks ago. Um, did I tell you guys about this or was it another set setting? 
I've told you about this, just bear with me. But he talked about twice how he was involved in, in, in a situation where a person was demon-possessed. This um, girl, they were, they were counseling this girl, and um, all of a sudden she was getting kind of belligerent, really, really belligerent. And all of a sudden she just kind of fainted and lost, lost consciousness for a moment. And then she came back up and said, I see what's going on. I've been watching everything that's been going on in this room. And it was the demon talking from, from above saying, I've seen everything that's gone on in this room. And basically they said, you know, in Jesus' name, we ask you to be quiet. We're not going to deal with you right now. We want to deal with the girl. You have no place here. We want to um, address her with the gospel. And basically she snapped back into it and said, what happened? I have no idea what happened. And he's like, that's not important right now. And they continued to minister the gospel to her. The second time was a few years later. He was in a restaurant with a big bodybuilder in Florida. And the guy got really loud and really belligerent and really like, like yelling and screaming in, in the restaurant. Like almost like this demonic voice came out of him. And he just said, you know, in Jesus' name, I don't, we're not going to talk to you right now. I'm talking to this guy. You know, be silent in Jesus' name. And he said, you know, the demon just kind of backed off. I will be the first one to tell you I've never had a demonic encounter. That, I, that I'm aware of. Now, it doesn't mean that I haven't been involved with something where it was behind the scenes that I haven't seen it, but I have not directly spoken to a demon. I haven't directly, I'm not cast out a demon. But I'm not saying that that won't ever happen. Um, I, I think demons are alive and well, and there's, it's real. I, I don't believe there's a demon behind every bush where, like, if you sneeze, that was a demon or all these things. I believe it's, I believe it's real, um, but I think sometimes in America... It's a little bit more subtle because we're tempted with different things than those other cultures are. We're tempted more with materialism and sexual immorality and complacency and things like that. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Re- yeah. Just on my bus just recently, I thought, I thought kids from K through 2, just in going from Eris to Campbell, they're talking about Bloody Mary and all that. I turn around and I'm like, we're not talking about that on <laughs> my bus. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't know they were. They are, yeah. It's not really. And not aware. I'm not aware of it because Bloody Mary honestly comes up every year. Somebody says something about it. Okay. Well. Forever. I think I heard that. Exactly. Okay. I was observing that that came up, but it hasn't been. I haven't heard about it at all this year. So. And it's just like my bus is. It's just a few kids, and I don't. I'm sure. I don't know. Well, uh, yeah. Let's. For the sake of time, guys, let's go back to verse 22 because I think. This is. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Are we stronger than God? Should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Um, we provoke the Lord to jealousy when we engage in idolatry because the Lord is jealous for His name. We often don't think about the Lord being a jealous God, but the Scriptures teach that. Um, Exodus 20, verse 5, and also in Deuteronomy, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, does this mean that God is green with envy and He gets upset with a human type of jealousy, or what does it mean? It's a holy type of jealousy that he has for his honor. 
and his name, and he wants to be worshipped solely and supremely above all other gods, and he's not going to share his glory with another. And so that's basically what Paul's saying. The bottom line with idolatry is this. When, and he, he backs it up by showing back to the Old Testament these stories. The bottom line is idolatry provokes the Lord's jealousy because he's jealous for his name and for his glory. Okay? Now, let's finish up here. Glorifying God in all things. Verse 23 down to chapter 11, verse 1. Really, chapter 11, verse 1 should be included in this unit of thought. And by the way, when the Bible was really originally written, there were no chapters or verses. Those were put in later on. So, um, but it really goes in the thought process. So let's, let's look at this last section. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Verse 31 is the, one of my life verses and probably one you should, you should underline in your Bible. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, here's the question when Paul starts. Is, are all things lawful? In the basis of the context now, we've looked, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a unit of thought that he started back talking about meat sacrificed to idols, these secondary matters. Can Paul be addressing issues of biblical absolutes or is he discussing gray areas when he says there, all things are lawful but not all things are helpful? Would Paul say, all things are lawful, even sexual immorality? Would he be able to say that? That's going to contradict what he said earlier. All things are lawful except lying to your parents. No, I think he's talking about these gray areas, and it's particularly eating meat sacrificed to idols. What he's saying is, as a Christian who's a Gentile, or as a Jew, it doesn't matter, you have the freedom to eat meat. Because after all, meat is meat. Not a big deal. But, and you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, look what he says. Is it helpful? Does it build up? So you've got to ask your question, self. In these areas of Christian freedom, when I choose to do them, are they helping me and the other persons that I'm around? And are they building up the body of Christ? Or am I just being selfish? And so here's the bottom line. Eating, what Paul's saying in this is eating sacrificial meat in a temple dining hall is idolatry and flirting with demonism. But eating meat bought at a market is permitted. On the other hand, if a Christian dines as a guest in a Gentile home and learns that the meat has come from an idol temple, he should abstain from eating for the sake of someone else's conscience. The greater good is love over individual freedom. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Romans 15, 2, let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul here is arguing there's nothing inherently evil about meat in and of itself because it comes from the Lord. Uh, he quotes Psalm 24, 1 there in verse um, 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. <clears throat> Remember when Peter was supposed to go to Cornelius and God dropped the sheet and Peter's like, I'm not going to eat that. That's not kosher. And God says, take and eat. You know, I've made it. It's, it's not unclean. Don't say what I've made is unclean. So the bottom line, Paul's saying, meat comes from cows. Cows come from God. So it's no big deal. But if there's a meaning attached to meat, eating meat sacrificed to idols, then you need to be careful. So if you go to the market and you buy meat, it's okay. Just don't, ask the, just don't ask the guy if it was sacrificed to idols. Go in blind and say, I'm just going to buy meat. Now, if he tells you this has been sacrificed to idols, you probably shouldn't buy it. But if you have no knowledge, he doesn't tell you, you don't know, you're free to buy it. Okay? That's what he says. If you're invited into a Gentile's house for a meal and you feel like you need to go because it's a family obligation or they're your friend, just eat what's before you. Don't ask questions. So if they serve you meat... Eat it, unless there's someone there that's trying to trick you or someone there trying to bring it up, and they say, by the way, we're having roast beef, Christy, and this was sacrificed to Zeus. At that point, you've got to say, I can't eat this, because at that point, they're looking to see if you're holding true to your testimony. So it gets kind of confusing here about when you're supposed to eat meat. Now, the principle for us, because none of us are going to go into a temple, this week and dine at a temple of Zeus. None of us are going to be, eat meat sacrificed to idols. I think the bottom line, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, don't do anything in your Christian freedom that's going to put a stumbling block in front of others and do what builds up. And I think the bottom line is verse 31. This is the question you've got to ask. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Can what you're doing, can you truly say it brings glory to God? in everything that you do. Colossians 3.17, kind of a parallel passage. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then Paul kind of ends the chapter there by saying in verse 32, give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks, to the church of God. He, he kind of brings back the argument he started in chapter 8. Don't do anything that's going to offend the weaker brother. Don't do anything to seek your own advantage. Remember last week, you got, most of you guys weren't here, but Paul talked about how he should have been paid as a minister. He had every right to be paid as a minister, but he chose not to because he didn't want to um, have anybody accuse him of doing it for the money. So he, don't take advantage. And then ultimately Paul said, my bottom line is that I want to see as many people get saved as possible. So here's Paul. He reiterates what he started. To say, here's the bottom line of what Paul's saying. Don't do anything to offend a weaker brother. Don't seek your advantage and do all for the sake of seeing people get saved. And then finally, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you may think that's kind of arrogant for Paul to say, imitate me. Is that arrogant of him to say, imitate me? Are there people in, the, in your Christian walk that you want to imitate? Not that you like follow them like you know, worship them like Jesus, but you look to them as a mentor, as a model, or an example, and you want to be like them. 
hopefully we all have people that we look up to in the Christian life and say, when I grow up, I want to be like that, that guy or that girl, that, that person. And so that's the end of chapter 10.